Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609. 3711. All right, this is episode number 14 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It is Friday, October 29th, 2021. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't allow me to say that on the radio, and boy, do we have some new information on that today. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. So let me, uh, (laughs) yeah, we got started a little bit late today because we had some issues. I sounded like Domo Arigato and Mr. Roboto the first uh, two or three times we tried it. But I see people checking in now. Uh, Z Catfish on the uh, Podbean app says, no more Mr. Robot, LOL. Uh, Ray Matburn says, much better. Yeah, we apologize for the inconvenience uh, that the uh, the people trying to listen live at noon Eastern, 11 Central had. And the people now listening to the podcast uh, download are like, what are you talking about? So anyway, sorry about that. Um, we need to tell you what happened in Wisconsin. Now, we... We reported to you the other day the report that Fulton County, Georgia, asked for like a million ballots that they weren't going to have time to send out just a few days before the election. The implication being, well, they had to know how many to overcome Trump's lead to steal Georgia. We reported to you a while back about the Arizona audit that showed way, way, way more tainted ballots than the claimed margin of victory of Biden over Trump in Arizona. So, you know, obviously they stole Georgia, they stole Arizona. Now let me give you Wisconsin. And again, thank you so much to the great Kylie Zimple over at thefederalist.com for her new article entitled Wisconsin Elections Commission shattered laws by telling nursing home staffers to illegally cast ballots for residents. Here's what she's got. Racing County, Wisconsin law enforcement blew the 2020 election integrity question wide open on Thursday after an investigation into one nursing home. Just one. Just one. It revealed not only the state election officials flagrantly broke the law and ordered healthcare employees to help them, but that the problem likely runs much deeper throughout the swing state's other 71 counties. Sheriff Christopher Schmalling said during a Thursday press conference in which he and Sergeant Michael Lewell detailed the findings of an investigation into Ridgewood Care Facility Quote, an election statute was in fact not just broken, but shattered 
by members of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. So what happened to Racine County? The investigation came about when a woman named Judy signed a sworn affidavit with the Wisconsin Elections Commission after she discovered that her mother, who had died on October 9th, 2020, after a period of severe cognitive decline, had voted in the 2020 presidential election. The affidavit was later passed along as a complaint to the county district attorney. Judy alleged that her mother Shirley's mental state had deteriorated so far that she was having hallucinations and wasn't able to recall what she had eaten during a day or even what day it was. According to Judy, her mother couldn't see, her glasses were broken, and she couldn't even recognize her own daughter. So even if she were of a sound mind, she would not have known whether someone assisting her with a ballot had voted according to her wishes. Sergeant Luell, Racine County, Washington Sheriff's Department, who led the investigation at the request of the district attorney, found an unusual spike in voting at this care facility. 42 people had voted in the 2020 presidential election from the care facility. That number is usually only about 10 people. Furthermore, in 2020, 38 people had requested absentee ballots up from the usual zero to three in normal years. When Sergeant Luell attempted to contact the families of these voters to check whether their loved ones had the cognitive capacity to cast a vote, seven replied no, and almost all of them had not voted since at least 2012. One of the family members said his mother would ask him who he was, meaning she didn't recognize her own son. She hadn't voted since 2012. Yet, my vote Wisconsin revealed she voted twice in 2020. I guess that means the primary and then the general election. So Wisconsin Election Commission broke the law. The surge in voting was the result of Wisconsin Elections Commission officials breaking state law. The commission, which is made up of six commissioners, including three Democrats and three Republicans, who are appointed by legislative leaders or the governor and serve as an agency in the executive branch under the governor, authorized nursing home employees to help residents vote, which Sergeant Luell noted is a direct violation of law. According to Sergeant Luell, Employees would ask residents how they voted in the past and then vote according to that party. In other words, if Judy's mother could only recall voting for JFK in 1960, staff would vote Democrat for her. According to state law, however, nursing home staff cannot assist residents with voting. In fact, nobody can help the voter other than a relative or what they call special voting deputies which are people appointed by municipal clerks or election boards to conduct absentee voting at care facilities. In March 2020, however, the Wisconsin Elections Commission sent out a letter mandating that municipalities should not use the special voting deputy process. Well, Sergeant Luell said, ladies and gentlemen, it's not a process, it's the law. And he cited 
the actual specific state statute. Now, the original letter was issued under the guise of COVID guidelines. Nevertheless, in September, after the governor's lockdown orders had expired and the initial shock of the pandemic had passed, the Wisconsin Elections Commission sent a letter to all residential care facilities telling the workers how to help residents vote, including even marking the ballot for them in direct violation of Wisconsin state law. Racine County law enforcement looked at 2020 visitor logs and found that other visitors were let into the nursing home throughout the pandemic about 900 times between the decision in March not to use special voting deputies and Election Day, November 2020. Those visitors included someone to clean the fish tanks and bird cages and even DoorDash delivery people. Sergeant Lowell said... Those people were allowed into the Ridgewood Care Facility, but heaven forbid we make an exception for special voting deputies. Under Wisconsin State Statute 12.13, breaking these laws about special voting deputies constitutes election fraud, which is a felony. Felony. Wow. So Sheriff Christopher Schmalling who made the announcement yesterday, noted, we're just one of 72 counties, Racine County. Ridgeland is just one of 11 facilities within our county. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of these facilities throughout the entire state of Wisconsin. We would be foolish to think for a moment that this integrity issue, this violation of the statute, occurred to just this small group of people at one care facility in one county in the entire state. I would submit to you that this needs the Attorney General's investigation. That's what the sheriff said, calling for the AG to launch an immediate probe into the Wisconsin Elections Commission. So add it to the list. This bombshell investigation is only the latest in the long list of malfeasance actions by the Wisconsin Elections Commission especially regarding the 2020 election. As Wisconsin radio host and lawyer Dan O'Donnell put it, the commission was downright derelict in its duty to fairly and impartially oversee an election. As O'Donnell documented, the commission unlawfully allowed clerks to do what they call curing ballots, to cure a ballot illegally permitted clerks were allowed to go home on election night and return to finish counting in the morning and illegally told clerks they could relocate polling locations in the weeks before the election. Now, to cure a ballot, that that means when when there's some uh, there's some confusion about the ballot. And you want to go back and maybe fix it and make it right. And uh, this is sticky wicked. Just so you know. So, furthermore, the Wisconsin Election Commission 
failed to issue relevant laws and rules for training municipal municipal election workers, special voting deputies, and election inspections. Worse, it failed to investigate voter rolls for the hundreds of thousands there incorrectly, including more than 45,000 first-time voters whose names did not match Department of Transportation records, among other issues. As the Federalist Molly Hemingway outlines in her new book, Rigged, how the media, big tech, and the Democrats seized our elections. The Wisconsin Elections Commission also wrongly kept third-party candidates off the ballot, including Kanye West and the Green Party's Howie Hawkins. Third parties can significantly affect elections in the dairy state. Republican United States Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, following the Racine press conference, tweeted out, quote, following the Legislative Audit Bureau report, what Sheriff Schmalling has uncovered and disclosed might only be the tip of the iceberg of fraud in the 2020 election. The legislature must be given the time, resources, and cooperation of election officials to conduct a complete investigation of allegations using elderly residents with cognitive decline to commit election fraud is reprehensible and should concern Every Wisconsinite and American, if Democrats will stoop this low to impact elections, one can only imagine what else they're willing to do. Yes. Yes, indeed. One can only imagine what else they would be willing to do. And the great Julie Kelly, she had an article back in November 30th of last year less than a month after Election Day. An article entitled, The Badger State's Ballot Fix Was In. Subtitled, Wisconsin now appears to have the same legal problem as Pennsylvania. Will Badger State Republicans, who hold a significant majority in both State House and Senate, follow their lead? It's uh, It's frustrating. It's heartbreaking. And you know that something must be done about it. Now, we have been taking a roller coaster ride. We have been taken on a, a roller coaster ride through this whole thing with the Wu flu, the China virus, if you will. And right before we went on the air today, I came across this remarkable article by a woman named Ann Bauer over at tabletmag.com. And it's entitled, I Have Been Through This Before, subtitled, Don't Wear a Mask, You Must Wear a Mask, by a pulse oximeter. Stock up on Tylenol, vitamin D, Pepsid. Whisper so you don't spit. Stand six feet from others. No, ten. Wear gloves. Wear two masks. Open the windows. Close the schools. The dizzying madness of COVID and the reliance on guru-like experts has been eerily familiar. Now, when I was doing talk radio, 
where I had to stop every 10 minutes and do a five-minute commercial break, I would not have been able to share this with you. But I need to share this with you today. Friday, October 29th, 2021, because a wise man once said, history doesn't always repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And I think that's what we've been going through now since about January, February of last year. Please allow me to share this with you. Ann Bauer at tabletmag.com, an article entitled, I've Been Through This Before. And she says, in April 1939, as a result of a backdoor bribe, a 35-year-old lumber baron named Bruno Bettelheim was released from the Buchenwald concentration camp on the condition he leave Germany and never return. In addition to running his family's sawmills, Bettelheim had earned a degree in art history and, like many Austrians of the time, dabbled in psychoanalysis and read a bit of Freud. His wife had once cared for an emotionally disturbed child in their home. When he arrived as a refugee in the U.S., he used these random details to remake himself as an expert in human behavior. A small man with a striking Viennese accent and manner, he believed he had valuable psychological insights from the 11 months he had spent inside Dachau and Buchenwald. Back in 1938, when Bettelheim was imprisoned, these were primarily work camps where prisoners were divided, stripped of their possessions, then beaten and herded like animals by the guards. Bettelheim noted that the men most damaged by alienation and violence, the ones who gave up hope, had similar effect. They avoided eye contact, rocked and muttered, and gazed at distant objects. He felt he had witnessed what it takes to break a person's mind. So Bettelheim's first job in the United States was as a research assistant at the University of Chicago studying high school art curricula. He divorced his wife, who had also emigrated, and taught briefly. In 1943, he published a paper titled Individual and Mass Behavior in Extreme Situations, claiming to have studied more than 1,500 concentration camp prisoners. Legendary general and future president Dwight D. Eisenhower praised the work. Overnight, Bettelheim became a, quote, doctor, unquote, and a star. On the strength of that one paper, <clears throat> his false claim to have worked with Sigmund Freud and his status as an intellectual and refugee from Hitler's Germany, Bettelheim was made full professor of psychology and director of the Sonia Schankman Orthogenic School for Emotionally Disturbed Children at the University of Chicago in 1944 on the strength of that one paper and his lies. Once established at the school, he won a grant from the Ford Foundation to start a program specifically for autistic children. Again, the guy was a con artist. He was a fraudster. Parents from around the country sought his help for their children who were mute, withdrawn, unable to follow directions, prone to stimming, that is, gazing at an object, object or brinking blinking rapidly into light, self-harming or failing to toilet train. 
In the mid-1950s, Bettelheim developed a new theory of autism based on his 1943 paper and the passing remark of a researcher named Leo Kanner who said autistic children never defrost. And that new theory of autism from the 1950s that Bettelheim came up with was the refrigerator mother. See, Bettelheim said bad parenting, like imprisonment in a Nazi work camp, was an extreme situation. He characterized the mothers of children in his autism program as cold, distant, abusive, and uncaring, you know, kind of like domestic SS guards. Though no studies were done to back up this hypothesis, his theory that rejecting mothers cause autism became the accepted science of the time. You don't want to question science, right? In his 1967 book, The Empty Fortress, Bruno Bettelheim wrote, quote, Infants if totally deserted by humans before they have developed enough to shift for themselves, will die. And if their physical care is enough for survival, but they are deserted emotionally or are pushed beyond their capacity to cope, they will become autistic, unquote. Dr. Bettelheim enjoyed decades as a media darling, appearing on television. He was a regular on the old Dick Cavett show on ABC TV. And he served as top expert for newspapers such as the New York Times and the Washington Post, which credited him with originating many of the techniques and principles of modern child psychiatry. Woody Allen gave this pop psychiatrist a cameo playing himself in the movie Zelig. Commonwealth Magazine published an article entitled The Holy Work of Bruno Bettelheim. He wrote a series of world-famous best-selling books. The refrigerator mother theory of autism became gospel, not just among psychiatrists, but in the zeitgeist. In the popular understanding, it made sense and it was easy to grasp. Better, it turned a mysterious and heartbreaking condition into a simple problem of who was to blame. People rallied behind the idea that cold mothers caused autism because it gave them comfort. Mothers who ch whose children developed normally knew it was because they were, quote, good, unquote. Fathers and other relatives of autistic children were off the hook. Even desperate so-called bad mothers embraced the idea, believing that if they could just fix themselves, then their children would be cured. Finally, an answer. They needed to sign up for intense psychotherapy, and send their autistic children to live with other families or in residential programs. Some mothers were advised to rehome their healthy children as well, lest their refrigerator qualities leak over and spoil another young mind, and many of them complied. Occasionally, families would reject the diagnosis, and their children would be taken from them by force. Reports were made. Psychiatric teams were mobilized. They showed up at the homes of autistic children, packed their bags, and removed them while guards held off the screaming, protesting mothers who had been deemed unsuitable. Dr. Bruno Bettelheim called this process parentectomy, a sad but necessary practice that would help autistic kids be cured. Many were taken to the orthogenic school, 
He ran at the University of Chicago, where they stayed for up to a dozen years. It wasn't until 1990, after Dr. Bettelheim's death by suicide at age 86, that residents and staff from the orthogenic school that Bettelheim ran at University of Chicago began talking about his rages, his name-calling, his constant lying, and, and yes, and yes, his abuse. A former counselor who went only by WB in a letter to the Chicago Reader in July 1990 said, I would characterize the atmosphere at the orthogenic school at the time as the beginnings of a cult with Dr. B as the cult leader. But by that point, almost 50 years of damage had been done, during which any clinician who came up with a different diagnosis or questioned Dr. Bettelheim's practices suffered immediate and devastating professional consequences. Psychiatrist Richard Kaufman wrote in the Chicago Tribune, in the orthogenic school, Bettelheim's mind supplanted your own mind. Oh, my goodness. So the author here, Ann Bauer, writes, she says, I was 23 when Bruno Bettelheim, a man I'd never heard of, took his own life. The following year, 1991, my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Andrew, lost language. One day he could talk. The next he was yodeling in a strange, high-pitched voice flicking the lights on and off and staring for hours as he spun a single wheel on a toy car. She says, my then husband and I were too young and poor to have a child, much less two. Our one-year-old had respiratory problems and asthma, which consumed time and money. She says, we're on the edge, barely able to pay our bills and buy macaroni and cheese. It was just dawning on me that I had married a dreamy, chaotic guy who drank when he was troubled and couldn't hold down a job. That's what county social workers saw when they called when they were called to assess Andrew following his meltdown at our public library. A tiny house, a fraying marriage, two depleted parents in cheap clothes, it was winter on the Iron Range where advances in psychology took some time to travel. The experts, a stoic North Country man and woman team, decided we were the cause. They questioned us separately and casually brought up the idea of temporary foster care. We protested and were told we could keep the boys, but only if we submitted to frequent visits and attended parenting classes twice weekly, which we gladly did. While we were being taught how to, impo how to impose consequences and establish routine, Andrew and his brother were taken to a childcare room where teachers helped them sing, play, and socialize. At first, Andrew seemed to improve, brightening and even talking a bit, but then he regressed again, a pattern we'd see repeat on a loop for the rest of his life. When an older relative came to visit us in spring, she took one look and my four-year-old sitting in the corner, staring at his hand. Her face tense with fury, she said, You've ruined that beautiful child. You and your careless life ruined him. Aren't you ashamed? 
We eventually moved to Minneapolis where treatments were supposedly more advanced. At five years old, Andrew was diagnosed with autism and enrolled in a program that involved rocking boards, chewy toys, and roughing his skin with surgical brushes three times a day. We blamed ourselves for our son's problems, and most of the new theories also blamed us. His autism was because we had, we'd had him vaccinated, or it was because we fed him wheat or dairy or corn, uh, or because we hadn't employed a team of workers to have constant, constant floor time with him, the so-called sunrise cure, or, or apply behavioral techniques according to the Lovis method, beloved not only by late 90s autism parents, but also by conversion therapy folks. Each new wave was certain. Each new wave was certain. The approaches to autism that had come before were barbaric and uninformed, but this most recent breakthrough was the one clear truth. Science had spoken over and over for a dozen years. We were heartbroken each time a treatment failed and guilty because without fail, someone would insist we hadn't tried hard enough. Sure, we had gone gluten-free, but had we cleansed with hyperbaric oxygen? A behavioral training worked, but only if you did it 18 hours a day. Why hadn't we taken out a second mortgage and flown to the Catskills for a workshop at the Sunrise Institute? Just shy of his 36th birthday, my then-husband gave in and began drinking in earnest. He lost his job and grew dark and silent. One day he apologized, hugged us all, got in his truck, and drove away. <clears throat> she says, now single, I rode the waves of hope and despair alone. There were periods of clarity when I was sure Andrew was breaking through. Adolescence was oddly hopeful. He spoke haltingly but started playing tournament chess and riding a bicycle. It seemed hormones might bring him out of what they call childhood autism as they do miraculously in a tiny number of boys. Years passed during which my sons grew closer and more alike. Once someone asked me, which is the autistic one? But along with better engagement, social skills, and speech, Andrew had chronic anxiety. When he started high school, a doctor friend at the university where I was teaching suggested that Andrew should be seen. Around the same time, there was a surge in ads for antidepressants on TV. Psychiatrists quit asking questions and plumbing the unconscious mind, becoming like tea leaf readers in white coats who studied blood test results but never looked their patients in the eyes. I took my son to such a person who prescribed him Lexapro. This was the moment Dr. Bettelheim's work was entirely spurned by a new group of experts who neatly whipsawed the other direction. They changed positions but held on to the religiosity. Nature was in, nurture was out. Brain chemistry became the only thing that mattered. Everything we had done during Andrew's childhood, talk therapy, sensory integration, cross-patterning, behavior training, biofeedback, they rejected all of it as quackery. So Andrew responded oddly to Lexapro 
as he did to so many things, becoming obsessive and manic, wandering all night. The boy's father had resurfaced with a new wife who happened to work for a pharmaceutical company. She says, I too was recently remarried. The four of us met to discuss the situation, and I was relieved to have help for the first time in years, but soon we were at odds. She says, my husband John and I wanted to take Andrew off the Lexapro, but my ex and his wife insisted he really needed something stronger. When we finally saw the autism specialist we had spent six months waitlisted for, he was entirely on, entirely on their side. The doctor said, looming over us just like those North Country social workers, your son is suffering from a neurological disease, and I won't permit you to withhold medication that will help him. I would call that abuse. So he put Andrew on Abilify, an atypical antipsychotic that ran commercials during the news. John and I asked for a trial of something milder or more tested, but the psychiatrist insisted older therapies were inferior and wouldn't work. Weeks later, my son turned 18, and I lost the power to control his medical decisions. I watched as the doctor and my ex-husband, both large imposing men, insisted he take the drug. It's possible Andrew developed psychosis at exactly the same time he began taking psychiatric drugs that my ex and the doctor were right and I was wrong. It's also possible that his brain was fragile and the drugs that were loaded into it over time, his doctor added Risperdal and a little Depakote, melted his circuitry, causing decompensation. But each time I raised the question, I was lectured. Andrew should have been medicated earlier. I had been negligent. The doctors were playing catch-up. It would take at least three months to see benefits, possibly six months. I must not think of taking him off because withdrawal was dangerous. Two doctors threatened to report me for mistreatment of a vulnerable adult if I tried. I wrote an article for a local magazine telling our story and questioning the widespread use of antipsychotics. A University of Minnesota psychiatrist, director of autism services, submitted a scathing rebuttal calling me an anti-science nut. Meanwhile, Andrew went from a shy, smart, autistic teenager to a stuporous man who gained 100 pounds and erupted in rage. My ex and his wife faded away around the time a county worker told a judge our son was out of control and the state of Minnesota mandated electroshock. This is 2011. It was common practice. John and I sued and ended up with a court-appointed guardian who was granted all powers of control over Andrew's life and later was indicted for doping his clients and stealing from them. Again, we went to court, and this time we won. In 2014, John became Andrew's legal guardian and began the process of detoxing him from the most dangerous medications. For two years, we lived quietly. Andrew in an apartment complex for adults with autism us in a small house, we planned to will to him and his brother, who had asked to be successor guardian. Every Sunday, we had dinner together and took a walk. Andrew had grown into himself, resigned and weary. No longer angry, he lived in easy silence and aged precipitously, appearing to be decades older. When we went out, he and I, people assumed he was my husband, this tall, grave, balding man. 
On a dazzling Friday morning in November 2016, Andrew was found dead on the floor of his living room. John got the call and took me to a park near our house, awash with crisp red and orange leaves to tell me the news. Fall has filled me with dread ever since. My son was 28 years old when he died. An autopsy was performed, but no official cause of death was found. Traditional methods of suicide were ruled out, yet he had told me at our last dinner that there was no happiness for him in this world. Seeming clear, clearer of mind than he had been in years, he had wiped his phone and computer and erased his music from Spotify. When we cleaned out his apartment, there was a pile of foil-wrapped pharmaceuticals in the back of a drawer. But the coroner's report showed low to normal levels of only two drugs in his blood, neither withdrawal nor overdose. My personal explanation is that he was tired of being controlled by the fickle czars of autism, and he was just done. The time between late 2016 and 2019 is mostly lost to me. Grief, it turns out, doesn't feel like sadness. It's more like terror, being chased through oily blackness. My husband, younger son, and I isolated. We drank. We drove looking for Andrew. He loved the mountains, South Dakota, Colorado, Oregon. We swore we felt him in the trees. We had started to function again slowly by late 2019. In January 2020, we traveled to Bellevue, Washington, for a conference where John was speaking I fell ill soon after with a fever and a breathless cough. I couldn't shake for six weeks. This friend of ours, a corporate lawyer with business in China, raised an eyebrow and told us a pandemic was coming. All around there was tension, something uncontrolled and wicked in the air. John is an Internet security expert with a background in mathematics. He'll often talk about the shape of a problem. This is its outline, its gestalt. He envisions it like dots on a chart or waves on a graph. I see holographic images, the shape of an ambitious refugee, white coats and flim-flam men glimmering under the figures we see today. In March, April, May of 2020, familiar shapes began to emerge. Suddenly there emerged a cadre of pandemic experts who recommended, then quickly required, extreme and unprecedented things. People shouldn't see their parents. People shouldn't visit friends. People shouldn't hold funerals. People shouldn't hug each other. We could never shake hands again. Wearing masks was useless. Oh, but we must mask, both indoors and out. There were hotlines set up in many cities, including mine, for citizens to report their neighbors who did not comply. New York City police were sent to break up a Jewish funeral in New York City. Day after day, media rained down information about who was to blame. Millennials, spring breakers, southerners, motorcyclists, Scientists who proposed different theories were muffled, derided, sidelined. They were deemed dangerous. Their ideas were said to be misinformation. To question, to question the official 
understanding was sacrilege. But you see, I had lived through all of this before. She says, in the last days of May 2020, police murdered a man in my city, setting off worldwide mass protests. But these gatherings were proclaimed to be different. They were proclaimed to be sanctified. A service was held indoor, packed with people, including an unmasked U.S. senator and our Minnesota governor who had pledged to send the National Guard to break up anyone else's funeral. They sang. They gripped hands. This, too, was blessed by those in charge, just as they had all the years of my son's life. Recommendations changed at a furious pace, echoed by not only public health officials, but their inner circle of a tech giant, a nutritionist, a sociologist, a healthcare entrepreneur, which now enjoyed the support of both the U.S. government and the monopoly tech platforms that control what we are allowed to see and read. The experts rocketed beyond the reach of scientific gravity into an evidence-free atmosphere where every passing theory became both law and truth. The year of COVID continued with a drumbeat of warnings nationwide. Sanitize your bleach with, pardon me, sanitize your mail with bleach and a UV light. Don't wear a mask. Then you must wear a mask. Buy a pulse oximeter. Stock up on Tylenol, vitamin D, Pepsid. Form a pod. Get an air filter. Whisper so you don't spit. Stand six feet from others. No, ten feet. Wear gloves. Put on goggles because the virus can get in through your eyes. Don't pet the dog. Keep your teenager in the garage. Isolate a sick toddler in your basement with a bell. Wear two masks. Stay out of restaurants, nail salons, gyms. Open the windows. Close the schools. Finally, the vaccines came and they seemed at first to be a miracle. But still, there were certain things you weren't allowed to discuss, like side effects, transmissibility, natural immunity. The shots were immaculate and all-powerful. Then suddenly, they were not. Vaccinations were undone by the unvaccinated. They couldn't save the faithful because of the sinful. And the drug alone wasn't enough. True believers wore a mask as well. And those who did not were causing the cure to fail. Whatever the experts said on television became reality, became, quote, science, unquote. Meanwhile, people died and died and died. And just as the ongoing tragedy of autism of a child was somehow the mother's fault, over and over again, Doctors and officials blamed their audience of three billion for the disease. The more the cures failed, the greater the fault of the public. The flaw was never in the remedy, but in those who failed to behave and thereby brought the plague upon themselves. After schools were closed and our city shut down in March of 2020, I lay awake nights imagining all the children like my son, who were mute, sensitive, bound to routine, friendless, in desperate need of services and incapable of learning on Zoom, the adults with already isolating disabilities whose programs and activities supported jobs 
and social work visits were canceled. The ones who were, were returned with COVID to their group homes and left to die. Occasionally I would panic, my heart pounding, and my husband would awaken to comfort me. More than once, he actually said the words, it's okay, you can sleep, Andrew's gone. But I was haunted, driven, obsessed, the way my child with autism had been. It was so clear to me the politicians and public health officials were flailing and doing harm with every new order and unprecedented decree. I saw the shape of that army of autism experts. I questioned everything, school closures, lockdowns, masks, talking compulsively about the inevitable consequences, the ways we were breaking people. Fully half of my friends, people who sat with me in the hours after my son's death, quit speaking to me in 2020. My editors, clients, and work colleagues simply disappeared. Of the friends who remain, most are sympathetic, but also loyal to the COVID narrative and therefore frustrated by my stance. They have suggested that I don't trust today's experts because I'm so broken by my past, and I cannot swear this isn't true, but are today's experts provably better than the experts of the past? Why should that be? Perhaps I learned from experiences that other people were fortunate enough not to have until now. In the end, what I believe doesn't really matter. History will out 10 or 15 or 25 years from now. There will be a reckoning, deep research, a spate of biographies and memoirs from the people who spent 2020 and 2021 under the sway of gurus. News media that trumpeted their wisdom and methods will issue brisk, researched, documentary-style reports. People will swarm out of the shadows to claim they didn't really believe the experts embodied science and were secretly resisting all along. Even those who preached their gospel and strong-armed the public's obedience will insist they actually did not. Because controversy sells... Stories may get lurid and over the top, that whipsaw effect, you know. A few of the people who worked with Dr. Bruno Bettelheim, such as Dr. Jacqueline Sanders, who was his second-in-command and successor as director of the Orthogenic School, University of Chicago, felt the pendulum swung too far upon his death. He was never the oracle media made him out to be, Dr. Sanders said, but he began his career with a true desire to help people. Then came the media spotlight, the book deals, celebrity status, and wealth. What started as medicine became corrupt, bombastic certainty, a willingness to destroy people if it meant never having to admit he was wrong. There were no studies to support Bettelheim's work. Joan Beck reminded readers in her 1997 Chicago Tribune article setting the record straight about a fallen guru. So he required the unquestioning, devout allegiance of his team to constantly remake reality so that it conformed to his recommendations. After Bettelheim's death, when allegations of abuse started streaming in from both workers and residents, a journalist and former literary editor at The Nation magazine, Richard Pollack, began working on a memoir about his brother who had been a resident at the Orthogenic School, 
Among the things Pollock uncovered in his research for his book, The Creation of Dr. B, a biography of Bruno Bettelheim, was this. Under Bettelheim's directorship, researchers routinely mislabeled children as autistic or retarded who were not autistic or retarded in order to raise their so-called cure rate and increase funding and grants. In his 2007 book, Madness on the Couch, Blaming the Victim in the Heyday of Psychoanalysis, science writer Edward Dolnick reported the paper show Bettelheim knew his methods, couldn't cure autism in 1964, but continued publishing, pushing the refrigerator mother theory and removing children from their families for decades. Admitting only in his final manuscript, published posthumously, that, quote, nobody knows how to treat these children, unquote. Since Bettelheim took his life, the orthogenic school has undergone major changes. Their own family handbook makes glancing reference to Bettelheim's highly controversial theories and credits him briefly for drawing attention to the problem of autism. In 2014, the school moved from the somber brick buildings where it had been housed for almost 100 years to a sunny campus in Chicago's Woodlawn neighborhood. Earlier this year, they announced they're closing their residential program for good. At some point, I cannot say when, because there were years that went by like dark water, I went to Chicago and visited the site of the old orthogenic school where Bruno Bettelheim once ruled. A psychiatry fellow I'd contacted showed me around, talking gravely about the bizarrely ignorant methods that had once dominated his field. He showed me the rooms where the children lived far from their parents and the courtyard where in Bettelheim's era there had been a statue in the shape of a mother that he had encouraged his young male students to urinate on. I don't know what I thought I'd find there. Maybe I was looking for the answer to how terribly and repeatedly we as people can get our responses to nature so wrong. The courtyard was empty, brilliantly sunny. The brick buildings were old and graceful like hallowed monuments to science. I had to remind myself there were decades of abuse, psychological terror, and forced separation from parents within the walls of this place. And for all those years, staff watched and participated without a single one of them speaking out. That's a long article, but I had to share it with you. It's remarkable, and I had to share it with you. That's Ann Bauer over at tabletmag.com. The article's entitled, I've Been Through This Before. Ms. Bauer is the author of four books, including the novels A Wild Ride Up the Cupboards and The Forever Marriage. Her essays have been published in the New York Times and a bunch of other places. But uh, there's an elephant in the living room. Okay? There's a, um, 
there's a name that is in the back of our minds or maybe the front of our minds, a name of a very evil man that this whole long article I just shared with you reminds us of. He's not mentioned by name in the article, but he's all throughout it, isn't he? Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yes. The man's the man whose agency sent over $400,000 to a lab in Tunisia to pay them to drug beagle puppies. And while still living, put their heads inside compartments filled with starving sand flies who would torture them to death. The Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's Yes, whose agency uh, also grafted the scalps of aborted babies onto mice. Dr. Anthony Fauci, whose agency gave millions to the University of Pittsburgh to uh, remove organs from full-term aborted babies. And... We're supposed to act like he's some kind of a expert. When he says, stole, don't wear masks, we're supposed to, okay, well, we won't wear masks. Oh, he says, you got to wear masks. Oh, okay, you got to wear masks. Oh, okay, double mask. Oh, right, 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 right. Never shake hands again. Oh, okay, I got it. Probably ought to wear goggles. Oh, okay. Fauci said all these things. He's 80 now. Bruno Bettelheim was 86 when he committed suicide. None of us live forever. Makes you wonder what the next few years will be like for Fauci. Makes you wonder why Bruno Bettelheim committed suicide. Makes you wonder. Um, There there, there is a... uh, There is a term that's used in in Scripture called a a seared conscience. A seared conscience. And uh, I I don't think that any of us, you, you would need the mind of God to know who does and who doesn't have a seared conscience, but I can at least tell you what it says, okay? I can at least tell you what it says. I can't say this one has a seared conscience, that one doesn't have a seared conscience because there have been people who've done horrible things who later completely repented of their sins. We read that King David basically stole a man's wife and, and had him murdered to cover up his crime when she became pregnant and yet repented of his sin and was eventually forgiven and restored. So I, 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 I can't say this one has a seared conscience. That one doesn't. What King David did was a horrible thing, and yet somehow God restored him. Horrible thing. But I can tell you what it says about a seared conscience. This is in the Apostle Paul's first letter 
to a young man he was mentoring named Timothy from the fourth chapter. Fourth chapter. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Their, uh, their consciences are seared, it says. Now, I heard many years ago that the word picture here of the seared conscience is, um, well, back in the day, if, uh, if men were in battle, you know, and they, and they didn't have the kind of technology, guns and cannons and stuff, they fought with swords. Right, they fought with swords. Um, if someone was, you know, had a, had a had a gash in his arm where the guy from the opposing army had cut him with a sword, it was bleeding. To try to save the man's life, they would put a sword in a fire and try to cauterize the wound with a flat part of the sword to try to cauterize the wound, to try, try, to, try to sear it there, you know. And it might save the man's life, but he would never, you know, the nerve endings were, were shot. They were, they were gone. So he would never feel anything there anymore. And... That was the idea of the conscience being seared, the, the word picture there. You, you don't ever want to have a seared conscience the way that a, a, a flesh wound, if cauterized, was seared. You, you, you want to be able to understand and realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, what I did was wrong. I need to uh, seek God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of whoever I might have, uh, you know, affected by what I did. You, you don't want a seared conscience. I don't know if Anthony Fauci has a seared conscience, but what I do know, oh, what I do know, is that he seems to have no qualms about going on television and... Um, and lying through his teeth. You know, he, he's lied under oath numerous times. Numerous times. Claiming that uh, claiming the NIH did not fund gain-of-function research at the uh, virology lab in Wuhan. He's, he's lied numerous times about that, under oath. Under oath. 
You know, there was a guy named uh, Carrie Banks Mullis, the guy who invented the polymerase chain reaction method, what they call the PCR test now. He won the Nobel for it. But he said it was not a test to determine uh, whether you're sick, whether you have a virus or not. But the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, 50 state health departments were like, oh, we're going to use it for that anyway. Yeah. Um, the guy who developed the PCR technique had some things to say about Anthony Fauci. By the way, he passed away uh, in 2019, shortly before the Rona, the Wu flu, the China virus became a big deal. Here's Dr. Mullis talking about Anthony Fauci. What is it, what, what is it about humanity that, 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 that wants to go to the, all the details and stuff and listen, you know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking, you know, he doesn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face, nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy and he doesn't understand medicine. And he, doesn't, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go. They change them when they want to. And they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people that pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep to really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not possess the, the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem, that's a main problem actually with science, I'd say, in this century because science is being judged by people, funding is being done by people who don't understand it. Okay, who do we trust? Fauci? Fauci doesn't know enough to, you know, if Fauci wants to get on television with somebody who knows a little bit about this stuff and debate him, he could easily do it because he's been asked. I mean, I've had a lot of people, president of the University of South Carolina asked Fauci if he'd come down there and debate me on the stage in front of the student body because I wanted somebody who was from the other side to come down there and balance my, because I felt like, well, these guys can listen to me, but I need to have somebody else down here that's going to tell me the other side. But if she didn't want to do it. That's not an epidemic. The number of cases reported went up epidemically, you know, exponentially, because the number of tests that was done went up exponentially. How many doctors knew about HIV in 1983? Two. How many knew about it in 1985? Say 500. How many knew, how many knew about it in 1986? 40,000. So that's where the curve came from. How many tests were done? Look. If it's just caused by... Okay, it's going off this in different things. And, and there, a lot of people have a lot to say about Fauci and how he dealt with HIV in the 80s. But um, I just thought maybe... You should hear what the doctor who got the Nobel Prize for developing the PCR technique 
and who died shortly before the, uh, the China virus became public here, what he had to say about Fauci. I mean, I don't really see any difference between Dr. Bruno Bettelheim and Anthony Fauci, other than the fact that Fauci probably legitimately, uh, you know, got his got his degrees in institutes of higher learning. Other than that, other than that, he's a bad guy. He's a dangerous guy, and the puppeteers who pull Biden's strings will not allow him to fire him, even if he wanted to, no matter what he does. I mean, that's what I believe. That's my opinion, and you're entitled to it. Now, there are a few other things that, that I do want to talk about today before we get out of this thing. Um, but today's going to be kind of a neat day. We are. This is only episode 14 of this uh live stream slash podcast that somehow or another by the grace of God we've been allowed to do. And already uh, somebody else with a podcast decided to interview me, and that's dropping this afternoon, Friday, October 29th. And I just uh, I want to share with you a little promo for that. I'm going to get a drink of water, and, and we'll talk about a couple of more things. It's Chris, host of the Ozone Daily Download with Chris O'Brien. I like fighters, and I hate vaccines. So when I find out that Doc Washburn stood by his principles and told his employer, Cumulus, that no, I'm not taking an experimental jab that's only in emergency use, and he lost his job for his principles. Then he goes and starts this podcast you're listening to right now, and he is finally able to talk about what he wants to talk about and that's the kind of guy i want to interview so we did and just in time for most people's commute this friday our overview drops at 4 p.m eastern it's doc washburn like you've never heard him before to listen just go to spotify or the iheart app and just type in the ozone daily download with chris o'brien you don't want to miss this all right, thank you, Mr. O'Brien. Appreciate that. Um, John Solomon's justthenews.com website. Heard about this? Virginia governor's race may not be decided on election day. Really? Really? Gee, I wonder what that could possibly mean. They're going to try to steal this one? What, I mean, what am I supposed to think? What am I supposed to think? GOP blasts possible $450,000 payout to illegal immigrant families by Joe Biden. Heard about that? Reports out now that the Biden administration is discussing paying almost half a million dollars per person to illegal immigrants who were separated from their families at the southern border during the Trump administration, calling it insanity, unacceptable, and a slap in the face. First reported by the Wall Street Journal yesterday, the Departments of Justice, Homeland Security, and Health and Human Services are considering the payments in order to settle lawsuits filed by the, was it uh, the great one Mark Levin calls him, 
the American Criminal Liberties Union, ACLU, and others on behalf of families who crossed the U.S. from Mexico illegally to seek asylum. So we're going to pay people $450,000 a person for breaking the law. And speaking of illegally, I mean, some of those kids were taken away from some of those adults because nobody knew whether the adults were actually parents or human traffickers wanting to sell these kids into slavery and prostitution. No, I'm saying, Holmes? We did the right thing. We did the right thing. But uh, but Biden's handlers want to make sure that the wrong thing is done. Want to make sure the wrong thing is done. I, I, I got so much more. I got plenty more. New York Post. U.S. Marshals raid wrong apartment, hold mom and baby at gunpoint. Did you hear about this? Yeah, this is a report uh, from uh, WFLA down in Manatee County, Florida. U.S. Marshal searching for a murder suspect in Florida, knocked on the wrong door, and forced a mother holding her child out at gunpoint. 22-year-old Kata Staples said she was napping Friday at her apartment in Bradenton, Florida, down below Tampa, with a three-month-old child when armed U.S. Marshals knocked at her door and ordered her to come out saying, quote, we know he's in there, unquote. Footage from Ms. Staples' doorbell camera shows two agents with guns drawn outside her unit. She recalled, and they started screaming at me, U.S. Marshals, open up, we know he's in there, yelling to come out. And I just kind of started freaking out, so I'm trying to hurry up and put my dog away in his cage. Moments later, Staples cracked open her door, and the U.S. Marshals pushed her and her baby out of the way while holding them at gunpoint. The frightened mom said of her child, there's a gun about a foot away from her face. The footage shows Staples in tears outside her apartment as U.S. Marshals realized they made a mistake. Staples told WFLA-TV in Tampa, and then all run out, and they're like, that's wrong apartment, wrong apartment. Aside from her dog and child, no one else was inside Staples' apartment. The man being sought by the U.S. Marshals was Shamar Johnson, who was wanted for a homicide in September in Manatee County. According to NBC News, he was taken into custody at another apartment on the same floor as Staples moments later. That's what the federal law enforcement agency said in a statement. NBC News reported Staples' residence was a target of the investigation and marshals did not make entry. According to the statement, which did not include an apology for the mix-up, Ms. Staples told WFLA-TV Tampa, no sorry, no nothing. They tell me, you're good. Another one said, you're fine. So, had Ms. Staples not made contact with the agents through her ring doorbell device, the marshals would not have had any contact with anyone in her unit. The footage, however, shows the armed men ordering her to come outside with her hands raised. 
This tape was told in another TV station. They did come back an hour later and said, we just want to explain to you that we saw a black male run upstairs and we thought he came to your apartment, but he didn't go to your apartment and it turns out it wasn't the black man we were looking for. The new mom, meanwhile, said she's been having trouble sleeping since the frightening encounter. She said, I think it happens more than people know and it can happen to absolutely anybody. You know what? I think she's right. I think she's right. No, I should have turned this off. I should have turned. Let me see. I'll call you back. Yeah, there we go. Um, what do we got here? The Biden administration has tapped the president of the National School Boards Association who penned a letter to Joe Biden comparing parents speaking out about their children's education to domestic terrorists. They've tapped her for a position on the federal board setting policy for student performance. How about that? Viola Garcia was named by Education Secretary Miguel Cardona to sit on the National Assessment Governing Board, which was established in 1988 and oversees and sets policy for the National Assessment of Education Progress. That board, also known as the nation's report card, examines student performance on a number of subjects and reports on their achievement. The one who said the parents criticized the school boards for domestic terrorists. Yeah, that one. That one. Go back to Fauci for just a second. Rand Paul. Dr. Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, told Newsmax, Democrats won't hold Fauci accountable, but I will. I hope so. I'm not quite sure how, but I'll, I'll post all this stuff on my Facebook page. I sure hope so. By the way, this whole thing about um, the gubernatorial election coming up in Virginia and the reports that uh, maybe it won't be decided on election night and the concerns about them stealing it. Jonathan Turley who's actually a liberal law professor, but he's got his own blog. He says, as a longstanding associate of the Clintons, Virginia Democrat gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe has long ties with the Democrat establishment. That history was placed in the sharp relief this week when he made a hefty down payment on the services of former Clinton counsel Mark Elias. Elias is a critical figure in the ongoing Durham investigation and has been accused of lying to the media to hide the role of the Clinton campaign in funding the Steele dossier. His former law partner, Michael Sussman, at Perkins Coie, was recently indicted by John Durham. Elias has also led efforts to challenge Democrat losses, even as he denounces Republicans for such election challenges. Elias has been sanctioned in past litigation. Like Sussman, Elias Elias has left Perkins Coie He ironically created a law firm specializing in campaign ethics. Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe may be preparing to challenge any win by Republican Glenn Youngkin. He has given 
almost $54,000 to the Elias Law Group. McAuliffe doesn't appear disturbed by Elias's highly controversial career or his possible exposure in the John Durham investigation. Jonathan Turley says, I previously described news accounts linking the firm and Elias to the dossier scandal, thusly. Throughout the campaign, the Clinton campaign denied any involvement in the creation of the so-called Steele dossiers, allegations of Trump-Russia connections. However, weeks after the election, journalists discovered Clinton campaign hid payments for the dossier made to a research firm, Fusion GPS, as legal fees among the $5.6 million paid to the campaign's law firm. New York Times reporter Ken Vogel said at the time, Clinton lawyer Mark Elias with the law firm of Perkins Coie denied involvement in the anti-Trump dossier. When Vogel tried to report the story, he said, Elias pushed back vigorously saying, you or your sources are wrong. Times reporter Maggie Haberman declared, folks involved in funding this lied about it with sanctimony for a year. It was not just reporters who asked the Clinton campaign about its role in the Steele dossier. John Podesta. Hillary's campaign chairman was questioned by Congress and denied categorically any contractual agreement with Fusion GPS. Sitting beside him was Mark Elias, who reportedly said nothing to correct the misleading information given to Congress. Washington Post also reported Elias drew from funds that both the Clinton campaign and the DNC were paying Perkins Coie. That makes a choice of counsel by Terry McAuliffe astonishing given these allegations from reporters and McAuliffe's previous assertion that someone who lies about little things will lie about the big things too. Mark Elias also was the subject of intense criticism after a tweet some have labeled inherently racist. Democrats used the recent Georgia election law as a rallying cry for federalizing elections by labeling the law as described by President Biden, Jim Crow, on steroids. Biden has been repeatedly called out for demonstrably false statements about the law. Mark Elias argued Georgia voters could not be expected to be able to read their driver's licenses correctly, a statement that seems to refer to minority voters who would be disproportionately impacted by such a requirement. Yeah, sounds racist to me. Elias's work embodies the inherent hypocrisy of some advocates and some of the media on election challenges. He often solicits contributions to challenge election results while denouncing Republicans are challenging election results. That contradiction has been readily apparent in the Virginia election. Terry McAuliffe brought in Stacey Abrams to campaign for him. She has repeatedly declared the Republicans stole the election when she ran in Georgia. Abrams was criticized for not conceding after the election. At one rally, Terry McAuliffe repeated the claim, quote, she would be the governor of Georgia today had the governor of Georgia not disenfranchised 1.4 million Georgia voters before the election. That's what happened to Stacey Abrams. They took the votes away, unquote. Elias McAuliffe and others, the media have denounced Republican challenges as advancing what they call the big lie of stolen rigged voting in the last election. Yet Stacey Abrams' defeat is being attributed to a rigged system in Georgia. Elias has not been criminally charged in his actions related to the 2020 election, yet bringing Elias into the Virginia race in the midst of the John Durham investigation is an astonishing decision by Terry McAuliffe. They're a host of election lawyers, but McAuliffe selected an attorney accused of lying to the media, advancing rejected conspiracy theories, and currently involved in a major federal investigation that's already led to the indictment of his former partner. 
Then again, Terry McAuliffe previously declared, you help me, I help you. That's politics. You know, I hope you'll forgive me if I come to the conclusion that uh, that maybe Terry McAuliffe, well, we have a saying in the South, that boy ain't right. That boy ain't right. Anybody else trying to give Terry any uh, any advice? What you doing, Terry? What you doing, Terry? Bag up, bag up. Bag up, Terry. Put it in reverse, Terry. Put it in reverse. My feeble attempt at humor. I can hear the guys laughing in the next room. Yeah, back up, Terry. Put it in reverse. And Terry just sitting there grinning. He don't care. He don't care. Terry's like, ain't nothing but a thing, chicken wing. Don't worry about it, man. So, um, <clears throat> that having been said, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm reminded of the words of the, uh, the great philosopher, Frank Zappa, who, who said more trouble coming every day, more trouble coming every day. So, so Deborah Burks comes back to Washington, D.C., to declare Trump bad and provide more COVID pseudoscience. You know, she reminds me of uh, Anthony Fauci, who reminds me of Bruno, Bruno Bettelheim. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot going on. We've got a lot to work on. We've got a lot to pray about. The great White House correspondent for Newsmax, Emerald Robinson, says, the question is not whether Trump will run in 2024. The question is whether Trump has learned to fire the right people and hire the right people. Well, I'm saying Holmes. She's always right. I can't think of anything that Emerald Robinson has said that was wrong. I, 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 there was something last year, she said, that I didn't agree with at the time, and I can't remember what it was, but <laughs> turned out later, boy, was I wrong. All right, let me, let me leave you with a little thread from the great John Hayward over at Breitbart, if I may. John Hayward, writer for Breitbart News out there on Twitter, today saying this, there are basically two ways to get people to do something, persuasion or compulsion. The key difference is that persuasion can take no for an answer. This is by definition. If I can refuse, you must persuade me to agree. It seems like a very simple observation, but it's crucial to understanding the difference between free societies and authoritarian states. Authoritarianism loves to masquerade as democracy and cloak itself in the language of persuasion and freedom, but it's a lie. An early example of this bait and switch was when the left started referring to taxes as investments, stealing the language of free market capitalism to conceal its authoritarian greed. Investments are discretionary. I can refuse to invest. You must persuade me to buy in. It follows that if the key element of persuasion is the right to refuse, which places ultimate power in the hands of the person being persuaded, then if you want to be free and individually powerful, 
You want to live in a land where persuasion is more common than compulsion. You should be constantly asking, can I say no to this plan or proposal? Can I walk away from it? Can I terminate the arrangement if it doesn't live up to its promises? Do I have recourse if I was defrauded? Will my ongoing consent be required and respected? That's an important authoritarian trick, one of the ways they hide their lust for power and camouflage it as so-called democracy. One man, one vote, one time. They pretend you had a choice, but once they seize power, you discover you're trapped in a bad deal forever without recourse. Collectivism is naturally hostile to the concept of individual consent and genuine persuasion. That's the lesson of the old saw about how pure democracy is three wolves and a sheep voting on what to eat. There's no need to persuade the sheep or worry about his ongoing consent. As the level of centralized power in society grows, it becomes less necessary to persuade individuals or worry about their consent. Politics masquerades as persuasion, but in truth, it's mostly about lining up powerful blocks until the unpersuaded are overwhelmed and subdued. The Great Reset... The mad dash to use the Wuhan coronavirus pandemic as leverage to reboot democracy with a hard authoritarian core is all about declaring persuasion unnecessary for a growing list of key issues. You will be compelled to accept elite consensus. One of the ugliest aspects of modern politics is the tendency to declare that certain hated groups no longer need to be persuaded because they have lost the power to refuse. Persuasion is hard work. Elites are insulted at the thought of wasting effort on persuading us deplorables. True persuasion in pursuit of voluntary cooperation is one of the greatest gestures of sincere respect people can make to one another. We are properly humbled before each other's sovereign right to refuse. We lean towards politeness because rudeness would end the conversation. Consider that one reason our culture has become so venomous is because People are less interested in offering that courtesy to each other, respecting each other's right to refuse. We fight over scraps of power now in a society where compulsion is far more valuable than consent. When the central state grows all-powerful, there's no reason to do the hard work of persuasion or humbly respect the right to refuse because it no longer exists. We should reclaim that which separates slaves and serfs from free men and women. That's the great John Hayward over at uh, Breitbart. And I think that's, um, that's something which should concern all of us, especially, especially, when we think about the Great Reset, when we think about uh, the World Economic Forum telling us late last year, by the year 2030, you won't own anything, you won't have any privacy, but you'll be so much happier. Know what I'm saying? Persuasion versus coercion. So, um... As it's Friday, let me just remind you to please keep our friend Dan Bongino in your prayers. 
persuasion versus coercion. You see, Dan has an agreement to do a daily radio talk show for the company that uh, tried to coerce me into getting the vaccine, and they fired me because I wouldn't. And Dan is trying to stick up for people like me, and um, it's uh, become very difficult. They've pretended he's on vacation this whole week. He's not, but I don't know whose decision it was to put on Best of Bongino on the radio all week long, but pray for uh, Brother Dan Bongino. Never met him, but he's a good man. We've, we've corresponded somewhat after I realized that he was um, speaking out for me and other people like me. Pray for Dan Bongino, and uh, God willing, we'll see you on uh, Monday, November 1st, this is uh, episode number 14. We're so so thankful, so gratified, so blessed to have over, t- uh, oh, I guess, over 23,000 downloads now off just the first 13 episodes, 48 states, 22 other countries. It's just been remarkable. It's just been remarkable. Now, when the folks in states I used to be doing talk radio in, Florida and Georgia, find out that I'm doing this now, Things should really pick up because right now our top states are Arkansas and Texas. Uh, that accounts for about 47% of our downloads. Uh, Florida and Georgia are not in the top 10, so perhaps uh, when the word gets out in those two states, we'll see what happens. But we're so thankful for this opportunity, and we're so thankful for everybody who has been contacting us, and we look forward to doing it all over again Monday and talking about whatever has happened over the weekend. God bless you. Thank you so much. Episode 14, Friday, October 29th, 2021 of the Doc Washburn Show concludes.